0: Well, good morning if you're new, Uh, welcome. If you were with us for Easter, welcome back. Uh, Awesome to see you again here with us. Uh, We are jumping back into our series on the book of Luke. We still have, if you don't have one, we still have some Luke study guides that are at the doors, uh, either on your way out or at the doors here. If you don't have a Luke study guide, this is the next section of the book of Luke that we're in from Luke chapter 4 to the end of Luke chapter 9. And we'll be in it for a while because Luke's a really long book. Uh, but So grab a study guide and that will help you uh, engage with what we do here on Sundays and give you some uh, discussion questions to use with your groups or somebody else as you work through the book of Luke. But if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and find Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the black, a, uh, a black one in the pew in front of you there. Um in the rack right in front of you around there. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and grab it, take it with you, read it, and follow along here with us in the book of Luke. Uh, We left our our study of the book of Luke at the end of chapter 4. So if you're in uh, Luke chapter 5, as I'm turning there, As well, let me just give you a reminder of what's been happening. Jesus comes onto the scene in Luke chapter 4 as an adult. He arrives in the wilderness. He faces Satan's temptation, and then his ministry essentially explodes onto the scene. Uh, All throughout the beginning of Luke chapter 4, uh, we see Jesus rejected at his hometown. We see Jesus preaching in the synagogues. He has a ministry that essentially begins to flow out of the center of Jewish religious life, which is the synagogue. Uh, It's the area where they would teach the word and explain the word and uh, speak the word to the Jewish people. Well, at this point in the story, Jesus' ministry is overflowing the bounds of sort of uh, the religious days and the religious spaces. And what it's doing is is moving out, as, as we saw in Luke chapter four. A report from Jesus about Jesus starts to spread, and it starts to impact a lot of different places and a lot of different spaces and a lot of different people. And we see Jesus heal the sick. We see Jesus cast out demons, and everybody is astonished and amazed at what Jesus is doing. Uh, and today, what we're going to look at here is is really a, a very key event in Luke's um, in Luke's gospel because Jesus is going to encounter one of the first disciples. We've already been introduced introduced to Peter because Peter was in uh, Capernaum where Jesus was and invites Jesus into his home after Jesus preaches in the synagogue and as Jesus enters Peter's home, he heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And then as Jesus' ministry starts to, uh, word starts to spread that Jesus is a healer, everybody shows up at Peter's house. Jesus heals everybody late into the night. The next morning he Gets up, people are all looking for him, and he said, "I have to go preach elsewhere because that is why I came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God." So Jesus's ministry is pulled uh, by his desire to preach and teach the good news of the gospel of of the kingdom of God. What we encounter here in Luke chapter five is very uh, compressed in both Matthew and Mark. If you read the Matthew and Mark accounts of Jesus calling the first disciples. It's as if Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and just shouts out at a couple of fishermen, they drop everything and run after him. Uh, It's sort of a very abrupt story. John's a little bit different. John, uh, when it comes to Peter, has Peter's brother, Andrew, uh, invite Peter to come and meet Jesus. So either way, we have a very early experience in the life of Peter as Peter, excuse me, is getting to know Jesus and who he is. But this event is a cataclysm in Peter's life. It totally redirects Peter's entire life. By the end of this passage, Peter leaves everything to follow Christ. So the question is, why? Why is this event in Peter's life so transformative? What happens in an event like this that causes Peter to literally leave everything, leave his business, leave his partners, leave his profession, and commit everything to following Jesus? And the unique thing about Luke chapter 5 is that Luke chapter 5, as I said, doesn't happen at church. It doesn't happen in the religious spaces of the day. It doesn't happen on a holy day. It happens in a Monday through Saturday reality. It happens not when the whole church is gathered. It happens because Jesus is out. And Jesus is essentially doing open air preaching. And no doubt people are coming to Jesus, hearing about his miracles, hearing about his preaching power, hearing about who he is and what he's done in the synagogue, but you're gonna encounter Jesus in the Monday to Saturday. And because Christians believe that we don't just listen to Jesus' word on Sunday, right? and then just close it and go about our day. We also believe that, as the hymn says, this is our Father's world and that Christ is over all, that all things have been made through him and for him, that every space in all creation is under his sovereign, omniscient, power, and providential control. And when we all gather on Sunday and we sing songs and we read God's word and we hear God's word preached, one of the things that happens is you wake up on Monday morning and you go to work and your boss probably doesn't open the Bible or ask you what corporate reading you want to start with in the day. And he certainly doesn't ask when you leave to get ready to go home what hymn you want to sing to finish the work day. He might not ask you to pray. For the meal, he might not really have anything to do with spiritual life. And what we struggle with as people who follow Christ is dealing with what it means to really follow Jesus Monday through Saturday. It's easy to get dressed up and shake hands and be polite and get your kids here on time, maybe certain a bit to a degree, and show up on Sunday and sing real loud. But what do we do on Monday through Saturday? What do we do with Jesus on those days when it feels like? He's not in control and he's not around and we don't know what he's doing. And I heard something good on Sunday. But what happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? And what you're gonna see is Jesus during the week. And what does it mean for us to not just worship Jesus for an hour on Sunday morning to say true things about who he is and what he has done for us, that he is the forgiver of sins and the redeemer of men and women, and he calls us into relationship with himself. But what does it mean to follow Jesus Monday through Saturday? And that's what you're going to get here because Peter is going to show us and Jesus is going to show us what it means to be called into relationship with Jesus and then to reorient our life around who he is and what he's done. You with me? You all right? Why don't we pray and then we'll jump in here together. Father, for these few minutes that we look at your word, we pray that your spirit would Give light to our eyes. As the Psalms say, the unfolding of your words gives light. And we would pray for the spirit of illumination, for the truth to be uncovered before us, and that we might have the eyes of faith to see it and obey it and understand it. So would you change us? And would you shape us and show it what it means, show us what it means to follow you, like Peter does here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 5, verse 1. Y'all there? You good? Luke 5, verse 1. Take a look. On one occasion, Luke begins, on the back end of Luke chapter 4, Uh, Jesus is compelled by his preaching ministry. He says, I've got to go to the other towns to talk about the good news of the kingdom of God. And what seems to happen between Luke 4 and Luke 5 is really really kind of an indeterminate amount of time. We don't know what exactly has been happening in Jesus' ministry, but as I said, it's overflowed the bounds of religious life and where they are and what they're doing and what they're talking about. And now we're going to encounter Jesus at a lake. So if you like the lake, Jesus likes lakes too. He likes to be there as well. On one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him. This is really the inciting moment all of what happens here in Luke chapter 5 is that everybody is desiring to know what Jesus has to say. As Luke chapter 4 has closed and we've seen demons cast out, we've seen people healed, we've seen seven different times in Luke chapter 4 the synagogue referred to, it won't be referred to at all here, but everybody now follows out after Jesus who is teaching what Luke calls for us here, The word of God, literally the word that comes from God. So Jesus in his preaching ministry is giving us verbatim the truth about the good news of the kingdom. The truth that sinners can be reconciled to God. The truth that the spiritually poor can be made spiritually rich because of what Jesus has done for them. And as this whole crowd presses in on Jesus, you kind of get a little claustrophobic and you feel Jesus backed right up to the water. Because everybody is pressing in on him and wanting to hear what he has to say. And he's standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Well, Gennesaret is in the northwest corner of what's called the Sea of Galilee. We began in Luke 4 in Capernaum, which is really kind of the topmost part, the northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee. And just now to the south and west of it is a place called Gennesaret. So this is what uh, the Greeks would call it. The Jews would have called it the Sea of Galilee at the time. It's the same place. Verse 2, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So these boats just so happened to be commandeered by Jesus because Jesus can take your stuff, I guess. That's allowed when he's Jesus. The fishermen have gone out of them, were washing their nets. This is a normative part of fishermen during the day. Fishing was typically done at night, and now during the day they would wash and mend their nets to prepare for the next night. Well, Jesus sees two boats. Verse 3, he gets into one of the boats, which means he can not only take your stuff but start commandeering it, and it was Simon's. Now, this is really the key of what's about to happen in the rest of the narrative. And he asked him to put out a little bit from the land. So you have the crowd... Pressing in on Jesus, Jesus gets into one of the boats and now Peter and what we'll see here in a minute is his crew, they move out away from the shore to allow Jesus a little bit of space because as Jesus preaches on the shore, the shore is in front of him kind of like a uh, one of these things, whatever this is called and everybody can hear him. He's kind of all around so he's able to preach from the shallows on the Sea of Galilee, semicircle, that's what it is. Uh, He puts out a little bit from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. Pretty simple, pretty easy so far, right? You got it? Jesus continues to preach. Jesus can take your boat. Write that down. That's good. Jesus can use it for whatever he wants. And verse four, when he had finished speaking. Now, you would all expect at this point, because of the way Luke has started this paragraph— You would expect Peter now to bring Jesus back to the shore and to begin to minister to the needs of the people, to begin to heal the sick, to cast out demons, uh, to begin to continue about his ministry. But what Luke does is very interesting at this point. What Luke does is begin this story in Luke chapter 5 with crowds, and not just a couple of people, but massive crowds. Crowds that are not uh, sitting quietly and patiently, but a crowd that is full-on engaged with what Jesus is saying. They're so interested that they're pressing forward with eagerness. And then in verse 2, Jesus moves out into the boat and he talks about the people. But from this point, Luke, in kind of a literary move, removes both the crowd and the people and leaves you only with Jesus and with Peter. Now the question is why? What has happened in this moment that Jesus has been so strategic, Jesus has been so intentional to get into this particular fisherman's boat and to invite this particular fisherman into the ministry that Jesus is called to? And you would expect Jesus to bring the boat back to land, to give the boat back to Peter, but that's not what he does. Look at what happens in verse 4. When he had finished speaking... He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So geographically, we've gone from the shore to a little bit away from the land to now Jesus and Peter are going out into the deep. Now, we know that there's more people on the boat than just Peter. This probably isn't a small rowboat. It's probably a significantly sized fishing boat for the day because it involves a full crew. We know it involves a full crew because of two parts in what Jesus says here. The first one he says to Peter, which is put down your nets for a catch, which is singular. Peter is the captain of the boat, is in charge of the boat is the one who will make the call on what the the boat needs to do and how fishing needs to happen. And then he says, let down your nets. And that's, that's a plural verb, which speaks to everybody on the boat who has a hand in the fishing that's happening during the day. Now, we don't know Peter's tone of voice when he says what he is about to say here. We don't know really how Peter is feeling, except by doing a little bit of interpreting by what we find in verse 5. But suffice it to say, as you'll see here in verse 5, you'll see that Peter does not think that this is a good idea. There's this teacher who's commandeered my boat, and I'm supposed to be mending the nets, and now I'm on the boat with this guy who wants to go back out to the deep. And if you'll notice, just this is amusing to me, is that Jesus is in charge. You notice that? Everything that has happened in this story, Jesus has has been the boss of. So we tell our kids, you are not the boss. I am the boss. (laughs) Jesus is the boss. Jesus is driving the narrative for us, right? Nothing is happening in this story apart from the will and the strategy and the direction of Jesus. And Jesus now says, Let's go out to the deep. Now, let's see what Simon has to say about that. Simon answered. You're going to see several things in Simon's response. The first is the way Simon responds to Jesus. He doesn't call him Jesus, he calls him Master. He doesn't call him Rabbi, which is very unique. To This time because Luke writes to the Gentiles Rabbi rabbi would really have no Pull whatsoever to to Luke's Gentile readers If you read in Matthew or in Mark You'll find that Jesus is referred to as Rabbi or teacher but simply Peter Refers to Jesus with a term of respect Acknowledging that Okay Jesus you've commandeered my boat Okay Jesus you're making the call But Jesus I'm going to be polite But this is not a good idea and let me tell you why Now, when you start with, this is not a good idea, with Jesus, get ready. Okay? Do you feel the tension in the story yet? Watch this. Watch what Peter says. Peter says, number one, we toiled all night. Now, toil is not, uh, this is not Peter fishing. Now, this is relaxing, right? This isn't Peter. Peter's toiling. The word for toil is used about half of uh, people like farmers, half of those who work with their own two hands. And on the other half in the New Testament, it's used of spiritual things. It's used of Paul telling Timothy to work hard. It's the word that means to work to exhaustion, Let's just pause right there just for a minute and say that Jesus is about to call an individual into his gospel ministry who is a hard worker. Someone with calluses and sweat and work and effort and toiling to exhaustion. And Peter tells Jesus, Jesus, it hasn't been that I've just woken up for a nap. It's that I have worked hard. I have worked to the point of exhaustion. Not only have I worked hard, I've worked, look at the second part, how long? I've worked all night. Peter works the night shift. Peter is out there working and working and working, not for a short amount of time, but Peter has been at it all night long. What kind of mental headspace do you have to be in to work all night long? Peter is not just physically tired, Peter is mentally tired because he has been repeating the fishing over and over and over and over and over again until morning light. But the third one is really the probably the most surprising, maybe the most confrontational thing that Peter says to Jesus. Because Peter says, I am physically exhausted. Number two, Peter has said, I have been doing this for a long time. But number three, Jesus, you don't understand. We've worked and worked and worked and my crew has worked and worked and worked and we've let down the nets and we've trolled and we brought them up and there's nothing and we've changed spots and we've let down the nets and we rebaited, and we drug again and we pulled it up and there's nothing. Jesus, what you're asking me to do goes against my physical strength, it goes against my mental strength, and it goes against my most recent experience. You're telling me to do something that I have worked at and fought for and strove for that has produced nothing. Now, do you feel where Peter is? You feel how Peter, you ever worked hard and it hasn't worked? You ever worked hard and it hasn't happened? You ever worked hard and given your heart and your soul to something? And you've done it over and over and over and over and over again? Again? And now the experience that's resonating in your head as I've tried and I've given it my best and I've done it for years and it hasn't worked. But there's a but, isn't there? There's a, in light of my experience, In light of my mental weariness, in light of my physical weariness, there's something that's more compelling to me than any of those things. There's something more compelling to Peter than any of those things. That Peter now chooses to do what Jesus says. Now look at what he says in the remainder of the verse. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, let me explain to you. There's two kinds of nets uh, described in the New Testament. One is a net that you would use from fishing from shallow waters and it's a net that would be thrown out and then gathered together and pulled in onto the land. That's not these nets. These nets are made of probably made of linen. That's why they need to be mended. And as they're tossed out into the water and the boat drags it behind it gathers the fish in and they pull them up into the boat. You with me? But the reason those nets are effective is that you use them at night when the fish can't see the nets. You never use those nets during the day because the fish all go, "Ha! Huh, here it comes. That was easy. So Jesus is asking Peter to do something that is arguably unreasonable. Now, Jesus is asking Peter to do something that he's had zero success at. Jesus is asking Peter to do something when he's tired, when he's weary. Do you like obeying when you're tired? I like a sandwich and a nap when I'm tired. I don't like to hear again from Jesus I know you haven't had any success, I know you're mentally exhausted. I know you're physically exhausted, and everything in you is preaching a message that this isn't going to work. In fact, we're doing the exact opposite of all of the current day fishing wisdom. And you've got to think Peter on the inside is going, Man, I like Jesus. He's a good guy. I mean, he healed my, my mother in law. I heard he's a great preacher, he's a carpenter's son. Maybe he could fix the boat, but Jesus doesn't know how to fish. I've been fishing my whole life. Jesus doesn't know that what he's asking me to do is stupid. But I'm going to put up with this Jesus just for a minute. And I'm going to do what he says. So let me, just, let me pause. Before we, like you, know the, like, you know, hey, the fish is coming and they're going to get it. And you know, like, at the end of the story. You can read it down right now and go, I know where this whole story is headed. But let's just pause and put ourselves into our own story because there are people in this room right now who are doing obedient things that feel like senseless things aren't they you're doing obedient things things you know to be true according to God's word and there's nothing in you that believes it there's nothing in you that says this makes sense Because I've seen lots of success. There's nothing in you that says, I've got a lot of energy for this. See, the story is laid out in such a way for you to look at Peter and go, Peter's exhausted. Peter's a failure. Peter hasn't accomplished anything. All Peter has is his willingness to obey God's word. And listen, as your pastor, I am never going to tell you that obedience is easy. Because obedience is not easy. Christians, amen? Obedience is not easy because obedience doesn't make sense. What Jesus is asking Peter to do is to exercise faith, which is the most impossible thing for anyone to do. You're asking me not to trust how I feel, but to trust your word. You're asking me not to trust my most recent experience of failure, and to trust your word? You're asking me that when I'm tired physically and emotionally and mentally to do it again? We have all felt that. We have all been exhausted and felt like failures because sometimes obedience doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes obedience is not culturally relevant. Sometimes obedience is costly, amen? Sometimes obedience is painful, right? Sometimes we've got to make decisions that go against the desires of our heart because Jesus says so. Because what Jesus is about to do is not tie Peter's obedience to pragmatism. That's not what this is. As if Jesus is about to go, if you obey Jesus, I'll give you three ways that fishing is going to work for you in your life. You know what your problem is? You don't use Jesus bait with the Jesus t-shirt and the Jesus hat, and you certainly don't have the Jesus lure and the Jesus boat. And I can sell you all of them for ninety-nine ninety-five, and your life will be great. That's your problem. That's not this point. Jesus isn't asking Peter to obey and gives a promise of blessing. He's asking Peter to obey when he's tired. He's asking Peter to obey when he has no reason in his past recent experience to think this is going to work. He's asking Peter to do something that looks stupid. Because we don't obey because there's a promise of our life getting easier. We don't obey because uh, my life will work better when I obey. We don't obey because somehow we have like some certified results somewhere else that we're going to get. We obey simply because Jesus says so. We obey simply because Jesus asks us to. Jesus commands us to. Jesus in the boat says to Peter, doesn't matter what you feel. Doesn't matter your recent experience. It doesn't matter if you're tired. Let down the nets. Again, again. How are we ever going to make... You know, this is just a really key part of our Christian experience. Like, our Christian experience requires... Like, you remember Finding Nemo? I, where is this illustration going? You got no idea. Hang on. You remember Dory? Not Nemo, but Dory, the bluefish, right? You know what Dory's problem is in the story? Dory is perpetually optimistic because... She has a memory problem. Right? She has short-term memory loss. She goes everything's great. Who are you? What is happening? And I think we like we can believe so much in our past recent experience. We can believe so much in what our physical, emotional, spiritual weariness is saying and that we can come to our relationship with God and go, this ain't never going to work. And trusting you has never, never worked out. And putting my faith in your word has only caused pain in my relationships. And it's, it's caused uh, difficulty in my life. And Jesus, you're asking me to put myself out there again with my coworker. You're asking me. I know I'm supposed to, I don't know, repent because I yelled at my kids. And you're asking me to do that again. That's not producing it. Anything in my kids. You're asking me to be honest at work when nobody else is honest? Jesus, this isn't blessing my life. This is costing me something. And over and over and over again, we're being asked to obey in scenarios where it hasn't worked. Amen? Do you feel that? That we are consistently running uphill. And for Jesus to ask us to do it again, this is. Why does the Dory illustration work? Because we need a little bit of short-term memory loss sometimes. We need a little bit of, it didn't work that time, but Jesus tells me to obey, so I'm going to. It didn't produce what I thought it would produce, but Jesus tells me to obey, so I'm going to. It doesn't feel. I don't feel like it because I'm tired. I don't feel like it because it hasn't worked. I don't feel like it because I'm exhausted. I don't feel like it because I don't have the energy. But Jesus says to do it. He says to let down the nets one more time, and it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to let the nets down one more time. I'm going to have the conversation with the neighbor that hasn't gone anywhere. I'm going to confess my sin and my relationships, and it could cost me, and it's going to be hard, but Jesus tells me to do it, and I need to forget the past and obey and who knows what Peter is feeling at this time but Jesus is asking him to do it again to do what he's done for hours to do the thing that's worn him out to bring him to do it again verse 6 and when they had done this when they had acted in obedience To Jesus' word, even though they didn't feel like it or see past recent results, when they did this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Verse seven, they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. This is an overwhelming amount of This is a preposterous amount of fish. This is, a, I don't even know how many fish this, I don't own a boat. I can't imagine the amount of fish you'd have to be able to put on a boat that would cause a boat to sink. Somebody do that math. Get back to us next week. Now this is, this is an unreasonable amount of fish, right? Now imagine if it was like six fish. What would Peter say? I mean, Jesus knows the right spot in the lake, I guess. He got lucky that one time. But there's nothing in this result that makes us go, man, Pete can fish. Right? There's nothing in it. Peter is totally humbled. It's so clear that this individual Jesus knows how to fish. Amen? If nothing else, this Jesus, I mean, he can preach good. But man, can eat fish. You should see Jesus fish. Now, the lesson up to this point has been focused on Jesus. We've learned something about Jesus, right? Jesus is impressive. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is powerful. Jesus has all authority everywhere in all times and all places to command even fish to get in a boat and cause boats to sink. Not even one fish, but two boats at the same time can cause them to sink. Overwhelming amount of power, omniscience, sovereignty, and control. Amen? That's Jesus. But now Luke in the narrative moves and he makes us look not at Jesus, but he makes us look at Peter. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it. When Simon Peter experienced the results of simple obedience to Jesus' word. Watch this. What do you think Peter's going to say? I need to learn how to fish. I wonder if Jesus would lead a fishing seminar for us and our boats later. I wonder if I was just using the wrong side of the boat the whole time. Peter says none of that. Peter is obliterated. Which is really the point of, I think, this paragraph. Because the entire tension of the paragraph lives in the middle here. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, one, depart from me. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, the point of the story and the point of really Peter's experience is not so much that Jesus is a good fisherman or that Jesus is sovereign, but in the presence of somebody who has all authority, all power, all control over every aspect of all creation, Peter's only logical response is not that he's a bad fisherman, but that he's a sinner. Peter's been totally humiliated. He's been totally humbled. He's totally unable to do what Jesus just did. And it's been proven by the fact of all of his last uh, late night worth of work. And Peter is, is ultimately exposed. And I want you to see Peter's theology of relationship with Jesus. What does Peter think ought to happen when a sinner encounters Jesus? Go away. Go away, it's too, he's too strong, he's too powerful, he's too wise, he's too sovereign, he's too omniscient, he's too in control, there's too much of it. he's overwhelming. This personality is too much for me. I'm not who I thought I was. I'm not as excellent as a fisherman as I thought I was. I'm totally humbled. I lay down at this person's feet. I lay hold of his knees saying, I am a sinner. You are not, go away. And do you watch how he changes the what he calls Jesus? What does he start calling Jesus? Master. What's he call him now? Lord. You are far different than I ever thought you were. And Lord, you and I have no business being together. And you can feel the the emotional intensity all the way out in the deep. Alone, Peter And Jesus, Peter exposed, Peter humbled, Peter intensely aware of his sinfulness and his inadequacy in light of the person of Jesus. See, Peter's perspective up to this point is that Jesus can surely use successful people. Jesus can certainly use accomplished people or wise people or people who are accredited or people with degrees or people who are successful, but how in the world could Jesus use a guy like me? How in the world could Jesus use a sinner? How could Jesus use somebody who has a track record of failure? How could Jesus use somebody who's exhausted? How could Jesus use somebody who's at the end of their mental and emotional tether? Lord, just go away. Look at verse 9. For he... And all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Astonished was most recently used back in Luke 4 to speak of people who responded to the authority and power of Jesus in driving out demons. So as Luke builds our theology of Jesus Christ, up to this point, we see that Jesus has all authority spiritually over any and all demonic issues. Number two, Jesus has all authority over any physical issues. Because he can drive out and heal any physical uh, difficulty in, the, in, the, in, the, in humanity. Number three, Jesus has all authority and power over things like fish. Over places like our workplaces. But Jesus has all authority and power even there. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, before we hear what Jesus is about to say to Peter next, I don't think there's one Christian in this room who has ever not felt that experience where we don't feel we are the people we ought to be, or we don't feel like we don't measure up, where we haven't been exposed and felt like failures and exhausted and at the end of our emotional, physical Tether who feel the temptation to believe our failures and our past define us. There's not one person in here when they consider the sovereignty and his power and his omniscience. I feel that even when as I studied this, I go. I, I feel like Peter does. I look at this and I, I feel my own unfaithfulness, my own lack of faith. Because if I, I wish I was on the boat and I was been like, wait till y'all see what Jesus is about to do here. I've read the end of this story. But in my own life, I, I come to spots where I'm at the end of my faithfulness. I, I feel like a failure. I don't feel like I have it all together. I get physically and emotionally weary. And I fight the same temptations that you fight Where I wonder, could Jesus use me? Does Jesus have anything to do with sinners like me? Have you been there? Do you feel that? I feel that. And what Jesus says next is encouraging to Peter, it's encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. There's nothing like feeling like a failure that causes fear to rise in your hearts, amen? There's nothing like feeling like you don't have it all together to cause the fear to grab you by the throat and go, what am I gonna do? Because I'm not strong enough, fast enough, wise enough, smart enough, financially savvy enough to know what to do in this situation. I feel like a failure. I feel like I'm exhausted. And Jesus' word to to the fear that must have gripped Peter's heart is the same thing he's been saying all the way through the book of Luke. The shepherds have said it. I'm sorry, the angels have said it to the shepherds, fear not. Gabriel said it to Zechariah, fear not. Gabriel said it to Mary, fear not. And what Jesus says to Peter is don't be afraid. And he doesn't say, don't be afraid, you're a terrible fisherman. He says, don't be afraid, from now on, you will be catching men. Does Jesus have a purpose for sinners to be used in his purposes? He sure does. Hey, newsflash, Jesus only uses sinners. Right? Amen. There's only one perfect son of God. Everybody else, the rest of us are sinners. Every single person you're going to talk to today is a sinner. Every single person in your life, all of your friend group, every single one of them are sinners. Every single one of them falls short of the glory of God. Every single one. And if there's no verse like Luke 5, 10b that says, don't be afraid, sinner, from now on, which means in Luke's gospel, it means from this point on, there's a new day for you. From this point on, everything is different. From this point on, the prerequisite of being used by me was actually your recognition that you are a sinner. That you are not as great as you think you are. That in fact, your weariness emotionally, physically, and your past record of failure is not a barrier to being used by Jesus Christ. It's a prerequisite to being used by Jesus Christ, right? So can Jesus use Peter? Can Jesus use you? He sure can. Don't be afraid. From now on, at this point, you will be catching men. The word in Greek there means to catch alive. And a lot of times it was used of ransoming captives. So in the context of a battle, they would catch them alive to be freed from that captivity and freed into a new domain. Now, could I do some preaching on that? What's Peter being asked to do? He's asked now to be a part of the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Is he qualified? No. No. Is he a success? Nope. Does he even know how to fish? No. Does that matter? No. You don't need to be afraid. From now on, I've got a purpose for you. Now, you imagine everybody in the boat trying to drag all these fish. I guess this is how you drive a boat. I don't have a boat. This is you driving the boat, right? Getting all of land. Imagine the conversation of all the people who are talking. Imagine how much money we're going to make from this haul. Imagine the seminars we're going to be able to put on about fishing. Imagine the opportunities that we're going to have to tell people about the single greatest haul that we've ever pulled in from the Sea of Galilee. Can't wait till we get to the shore. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, there's certainly implications for those of us who are called into full-time vocational ministry, but what if you're not? And the point, really, of the end of the passage is these individuals leave everything and get called into a new relationship and a new ministry of now being the gospel preachers for a new era is that everything in their life is second to obeying Jesus. You know, one of the things I don't generally like, and this is if you want to rant, give me, give me two minutes to rant, uh, is the use of Christian as an adjective. Christian plumber, Christian cyclist, Christian fill in the blank. Because Christian is a noun. You are a Christian first. So when these individuals get off the boat and walk away from the single greatest fishing haul ever, what they say is that everything in my life is second to following and doing what he says. Everything in my life, my career, my relationships, my parenting, all of that stuff is second to the fact that I want to know what does he say? What kind of husband am I? What does he say a husband is? What kind of wife am I? What does he say a wife is? So that everything in my life gets put in second place to Jesus Christ. So when these individuals leave And put behind them all of those things. They are putting their faith and trust into Jesus' word for their future. Right? Because now we're starting to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ on Monday through Saturday. Not just on Sunday morning when we sing songs on Sunday together. We want to know what Jesus has to say Monday morning to me when I go to work so that I am acting and walking with Jesus where I'm asking the same question. Lord, doesn't feel like obedience. doesn't look like this is going to be successful. I haven't had a lot of, lot of uh, I don't, I'm, not, I'm pretty tired. But at your word, I'm going to fill in the blank. What is that for you? Do you have those moments? Where you go, I don't feel like it, but I know it's true. And at your word, I'm going to. I'm going to let down the nets. I'm going to have the conversation. I'm going to repent for my sin. I'm going to welcome somebody who is an outsider. I'm going to take care of someone who can't take care of themselves. I'm going to give sacrificially because I know it to be true. And I am seeking and yearning and desiring to follow the one who has spoken into my life. Don't fear. From now on, I've got a purpose for you that transcends your background, that transcends your failures, that transcends your sins, and you may feel humbled at this point, but I can use humble people. Amen? Can he use humble people? He sure can. Those are the people that he uses best who've come to the end of themselves and have thrown in the towel and say, God, I don't have anything to offer you but my willingness to take by faith what you say. And Jesus says, that's enough, I can use that, right? Father, we pause and ask that we would uh, have hearts of wisdom to respond to your word, very simply with faith, that we would be the kind of men and women who act on the things that we know to be true and that you would honor our sacrifices of faith, that we would give to you uh, lives, Father, we don't bring our understanding. I met many of us in this room. We bring weariness and we bring uh, uncertainty about our own abilities. We bring uh, a track record that feels like failure. And Father, we pause and say we, we want to obey. Would you show us where we need to? Would you show us how we can say like Peter, regardless of what we feel, we'll let down the nets, that your word will do what you say. And Father, for those who feel exposed and unable and like sinners in your presence, we give thanks that you are a God who welcomes people close. You are a God who says, do not fear. I have a plan, and I have a purpose, and I haven't left you alone, and I'm going to use you. So we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.